This episode is the second episode of the Joseph Cox Show, and it is another Torah-focused podcast. Like last week, I'll set aside some of my uh, quality issues. Unfortunately, I just don't have enough time to make this sound perfect. However, we will continue nonetheless because I think the ideas are still worth sharing. Like last week, I'll also structure this week's episode around the five faces of Torah. Well, not the five faces. The five faces I've chosen for these podcasts. Inspirational, political, trivial, structural, and finally, my answers to standard questions. Let's start with inspiration. Near the beginning of this week's Torah portion, messengers come to Yosef and tell him his father is sick. Yosef brings his sons, Ephraim and Menashe, to his father. Yosef visits Yaakov as he is resting on his bed. At first, Yaakov seems confused. Yosef has to be introduced, and then Yaakov seems to drift from place to place, from blessing to inheritance to the burial of Rachel. The bridges between his thoughts seem formless. He names Ephraim and Menashe as his heirs, and then moments later, he fails to recognize them. There are many explanations given for this odd behavior, but I want to share the obvious one. I believe at this point in his life that Yaakov has dementia. Yaakov is 147 years old. He's lived a tough life, and he's losing his connection to this world. Then, in an instant, it all changes. He touches Ephraim and Menashe, and with that, he is blessed with the power of prophecy. He sees their futures and the futures of all their brothers, of all the brothers, he is beyond cogent at this point. He is inspired. I believe the reason for this transformation is simple. As we see in this reading, and as Rabbi Sachs was fond of pointing out, Ephraim and Menashe were the first brothers in Torah who did not fight. They weren't competing with one another. Yosef was from a family riven by competition. Yosef learned the power of purpose, of focusing on something greater than yourself. He used that understanding of purpose to transform himself, Pharaoh, and almost certainly Asnat, his wife. The Torah said Yosef was constantly traveling for work. Asnat raised their children. She raised them with the lessons that Yosef had learned. That purpose overcomes competition. These brothers did not compete, which is why today we bless our sons in their names. Yosef's sons are connected to the past and the future. That is what purpose is. It is about reaching beyond your own time and place. When Yaakov touches them, he, a man who is already stepping outside of time as he loses his connection to the world, is able not only to drift through the past, but to see the future. This connection to the future awakens Yaakov. It grants him prophecy. Few are capable of such a transformation. Reality is far more mundane for most of us. Nonetheless, we know that social connection, and particularly connection to the young, helps everyday people with dementia keep connected to this world. That touch, that interaction, helps these people stay alive. It helps them stave off the reality of cognitive decline. Among the many impacts of corona has been one particularly poignant one. According to a political report, a Politico report from September, during the coronavirus epidemic, an additional 26,000 Americans died from dementia. Without contact, people with dementia see far more rapid cognitive decline. This decline can lead to death. 
While 26,000 is a small fraction of those who have died overall, death only represents the tip of the iceberg, the tip of the reality for the almost 6 million Alzheimer's patients in the U.S. alone. These patients and many others with age-related cognitive issues have had their connection to the future severed by this disease. Through social distancing, we may be rescuing their lives, but at the cost of their living. For those who can accept the concept of Torah as more than a myth, try to imagine how different our reality would have been had Yaakov not touched his grandchildren. Would we have had 12 tribes of Israel? Would countless millions have blessed their children as Yaakov blessed Ephraim and Menashe? We would, have, would we have held them up as examples? Would the children of Israel have maintained their identity through the Egyptian exile? Would untold numbers of divrei Torah and sermons with their own impacts have lacked this material to work with? One touch, and the world was changed in ways we can't begin to understand. As far as I know, our elderly aren't Yaakov's. Few, if any, have spoken to God or had their generations blessed by him. For our elderly, the gift of prophecy won't be unlocked by a touch. Nonetheless, something is unlocked, some spark of connection, some filament reaching across generations, some essence of life and meaning. With the coronavirus, that something has been lost. Yehuda HaLevi wrote that when we die, our bodies cease. What is left behind is the holiness we've created during our lives. As I understand it, God's example left us a dichotomy. God created and it was good. And then he rested and it was holy. In a way, those without dementia are those with dementia are losing their connection to goodness. They can no longer create in our world. They are losing their sense of time and reality. What is left is their holiness, such as it may be. In this terrible time, it is up to us, to those who can still change the world, to create a future in which touch can be restored. It is up to us to create a future in which our children can not only lift up their elders, but can be inspired by them and can discover the holiness of those who've come before them. Okay, on to the political face. When he speaks, Yaakov delivers three things. First, prophecy. Second, blessings. And third, curses. The prophecies, where Yaakov does not state a preference, seem to come true. Yehuda becomes a ruler. Zebulun dwells by the seashore, and so on. Although we may not understand some of the other blessings, they have not failed to occur. But the blessings and the curses are another matter. As we read Yaakov's blessings and curses, it is clear that they don't all come true, and even when they do, they are twisted from his original intent. Yaakov says about Shimon and Levi, Let my soul not come into their council, unto their assembly. Let my glory not be united. For in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they hoed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Yaakov, and I will scatter them in Israel. Both Shimon and Levi were scattered, but Israel's glory has been united forever around the assembly of Levi. Both Moshe and Aaron were of the tribe of Levi, and the priests emerged from that same group. 
In a way, the blessings and curses are a reminder of human limitation. All human blessings seem to have this pattern. Noach curses Canaan, but Canaan are not made slaves. Yitzchak blesses Yaakov with a blessing made for Esau, but its reality fails to extend beyond Yitzchak's own life. The blessing, or maybe not even that long. The blessings have an impact, but they don't bend heaven and earth. The greatest power is the power to change the expectations of the men and women who hear them. Blessings speak to the power of expectation. In Ayan Hirsi's Ali's autobiography, she talks about three Somalian brothers from the 1400s. Those three brothers define the main tribes of Somalia and their characteristics, and the characteristics attached to those tribes. Those characteristics apply even today. The brothers' impact is not genetic. After all, they shared a father. Their impact is all about social expectation and its ability to carry through time. Social class in so many places is about social expectation. My wife and I heard a doctor with a Cockney accent on the radio, and we knew she didn't work in England. Expectation would have held her down. Indeed, she'd moved to Canada. People are deeply influenced by expectation. We live up or down to what's expected of us. Yet our attributes are influenced, yes, our attributes are influenced by a genetic reality. But we, by and large, live on a spectrum of possibility. Where we fall on that spectrum comes down to our will, and it comes down to the expectations others have of us. The English hooligan who gets into bar fights is not that far removed from the Englishman who leaves a perfectly productive and violence-free middle-class life. There's a spectrum, and expectation weighs heavily on where we fall. In this way, our reality is defined by the same core force that gives such weight to Yaakov's blessings and curses. And sometimes, that definition comes at a terrible cost. When faced with a mental or behavioral issue, we like to diagnose. We like to put things into a bucket. And sometimes there's a physiological core to that diagnosis. Schizophrenia is a physical, genetic ailment. Sometimes, though, we take a kernel of reality and expand it. A kid made me hyperactive. If he, or fee, if he or she fits certain checkboxes, we define him or her as having ADHD. Our expectations for that child as parents, as teachers, as friends change. We aren't treating a lack of focus or excess energy in the classroom. Instead, we begin to treat a syndrome that may or may not have a core of existence. The child becomes defined by that syndrome, and we look for and we find other aspects of it. All too often, instead of solving problems through these categorizations, we create expectations. And suddenly the kid isn't only hyper and distracted, Perhaps now he also, he or she, also suffers from difficulty in regulating emotions or controlling impulses. Expectation is a powerful force. It becomes reality. And so we should use it, especially negative expectation, sparingly. Again, there is a spectrum. There are those for whom all these attributes are inescapable, and there are those for whom the expectation of normalcy will have more positive impact than any amount of intervention. This is my political rant. Where expectations can lead to negative reality, let us do everything we can to set those expectations aside. As parents or friends react to specific issues instead of casting an entire person into a mold they need not fit. As people resist the urge to cast others aside as morally bankrupt or fundamentally stupid due to a particular belief or a political perspective you happen to disagree with.
This is not a call for civility. This is not even a call to treat others with respect. This is a call to make others better through your simple expectation that they will be better. When I was growing up, my parents brought many troubled teenagers into our house. In the vast majority of cases, those kids left stronger than they had been when they'd come. One of those then teenagers told me years later why he had come. He'd been high in his room when my father was visiting. In the years prior to my father's visit, he'd done hundreds of hits of acid, as well as a goodly assortment of other drugs. He didn't expect to live past 25. His life was a zero. High school graduation was out of the question. My father insisted that he come downstairs, that he leave his room. He didn't want to, but my father insisted. And when that young man finally came down, my father looked at him and said something to the effect of, why in the hell are you wasting your life when you could be changing the world? When that no longer young man told me the story, he told me that nobody had ever expected so much from him before, and that that expectation changed his life. That man is in his early 50s now. He graduated high school. He still struggles with addiction issues, but today he serves as an anchor of his community. He helps others with problems like his own realize that they can be more than just addicts. He raises their expectations, and by doing so, he raises them. Unlike last week, I'm going to share a second political rant. In this reading, we see the definition of chet, of sin, the brother or one form of sin. The brothers define it as doing damage. Destruction is sin. In the moral world, there are two responses to this. If we envision ourselves as purely natural, deterministic creatures, then we cannot damage our world. Our actions are entirely natural. There is only ethics. There is no morality. In this world, there is almost no sin. This is a world in which hypocrisy is the greatest and perhaps the singular sin. Seeking to break free of your nature and failing to do so is the greatest of sins. The only sin is the sin against what is natural. As I said before, I believe we all have numerous spectrums of possibilities. In some areas that spectrum may be narrow, in others it may be wide. We might seek our truest natural reality, but I doubt there is anything actually there. Because we live in a spectrum. If our highest reality is our natural reality, we might find ourselves grasping for emptiness. I think we embrace expectations because we want something more than ourselves. Whether it be community or purpose, we want something more. What we have to offer ourselves is a fraction of what we have to offer the world around us. And likewise, the world around us has far more to offer us than perhaps even we do. If we define a world in which the only sin is hypocrisy, then we define a world without meaning. I believe God used the snake to entice Eve to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil because it is better to know good and evil than it is to know neither. It is better to live in a world of moral choice than a world of ending, unending gray. It is better to have hypocrisy than nothing at all. On to structure. For me, the structural purpose of this reading is both to lay the groundwork for the rest of Torah and to show us the limits of humankind. 
In a way, at this point, a pinnacle has been reached. Through four generations of growth, we've learned about God, about the lasting reality of connection, about the need to work with the world, and about the power of purpose and responsibility. Despite all that growth, we remain far from perfect people. Yaakov sees fundamental flaws in his sons, and while Yosef expects them to be brought out of Egypt by virtue of their own characters, they fall far from the heights realized in the book of Genesis or Bereshit. What we're seeing in this reading is that the battle to improve ourselves, to step up, to be godly in how we act, is never truly won. Just having three generations of Torah scholars or righteous people does not lead to the elimination of our issues. There is no new man that is created. No ideal person emerges to slot into the fabric of an ideal society. The nature of our lives is that we always have to strive to improve. After an entire book of character growth, this reading is a reminder that what is gained is not necessarily retained. All roads remain open. What matters is our direction, not what destination we've reached. Okay, on to trivia. First off, it is interesting that Yosef has to ask permission to leave Egypt in order to bury his father. In the next reading, Shemot, the Egyptians enslave the Jews because they're afraid they will leave. Egypt is dependent on the Jews, just as Pharaoh is dependent on Yosef. But Yosef almost needs to beg for permission. He uses the oath he swore to his father to appeal to Pharaoh's sense of purpose. And this reminds us of Yosef's limits. His brothers can leave without permission, but Yosef, despite everything he has done, remains a slave. A powerful slave, yes, but a slave. There's a great story of a man named Hermotimus. Sorry about the name pronunciation. It's an ancient Greek name. I'm not so good at them. Hermotimus was castrated as a boy and sold. By some accounts, he became second in command to the great Persian emperor Xerxes. Eventually, he came back to the town where he'd been castrated. He invited the man who'd done it to a conversation. He told them that he wanted to thank him for the opportunities it had created. He wanted to celebrate the act. After all, by all accounts, he was a wealthy and powerful man. He invited the slaver's entire family to a celebration, and the man came. And when he did, Hermotimus forced him to castrate his own sons, and then forced his sons to castrate their father. This is a brutal story, but it is a reminder that in the ancient world, even those who were slaves, even those slaves who grew powerful, remained slaves. And it was a burden they could not escape. Number two, at the end of the reading, Yosef expects that the Jewish people will be rescued because Hashem will pakad them. God will rescue them because they deserve it. In reality, God rescued them because he zochers them. He remembers the covenant he made with Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. They are rescued because of a contract, and Yosef's high expectations are not met. Number three, God's blessing is God gadud yigudenu v'hu yigud akev. God, a troop, shall troop upon him, he shall troop upon their heel. This suggests a slightly militant group that attacks the heel. In other words, special forces. Later on, when the people are counted by their circles, I understand those circles to be military units. For every tribe, the count adds up to around 100, suggesting that their military units are 100 men strong. But God's adds up to 50. Special forces, after all, act in smaller units. And finally, we'll have the questions. Some of them are standard, some of them not so standard. Yaakov opens his prophecies with, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the end of days. Many commentators ask why he lost the ability to see the future and didn't deliver on this. But I don't think he lost the ability to see the future. 
All of his prophecies, excluding his blessings and curses, see the future. They may not see the end of days, but perhaps they do see the timeless definitions of the sons and their tribes. Yehuda is royal, Don is a judge, and Asher a cook. Even if 11 tribes have disappeared, Yaakov's definitions might define them outside of the limits of time. At the end of days, these images are the images that define who they are. Number two, at the very beginning of the reading, Yaakov summons Yosef to ask him to bury him in Israel. So why does Yosef go back a second time when he's told his father is ill? And along with that, why didn't he bring his children the first time? Or rather, why did he bring them the second time? On one level, perhaps Yosef simply wanted to say goodbye. But perhaps there is another level. At the first meeting, Yaakov laid out what he wanted from Yosef concerning his own burial. In the second meeting, Yosef doesn't want his father to set the agenda. He doesn't want to focus on the past or on a story that ends with his father's death. Yosef, or in his burial, Yosef wants to go back to what he has learned, the importance of purpose. At the time of Yaakov's own death, Yosef wants Yaakov to focus on the future, the living future. And that is why he brings his sons. It is an action that reinforces that a person on the edge of death with a mind that is not firing on all cylinders can still impact the future. That person only needs the opportunity. We live in a time of a pandemic when many who are dying lack the opportunity to touch the generations that will follow. This decision by Yosef should serve as a reminder. Don't wait until you're on the edge of death to touch the world. Don't wait until you might lose your chance to change the lives of others. Act now. There's a popular saying, you live for as long as people remember your name. I personally believe you live far longer than that. I am who I am in no small part because tens of lost generations of nameless people decided to maintain their connection to Judaism. They live on in me, and we can live on in the lives of those who follow us. But to live on in others, we must make the efforts to touch the lives of those closest to us. Don't wait until you're on the edge of death, or you're separated and sick and bedewed, or isolation. Don't wait until you don't have the power to make your own choices. Act now and change the world forever. Shabbat Shalom. Please share either the podcast itself or whatever thoughts you harvested from it. And if you enjoyed it, you might enjoy a thriller I wrote about the ideas of blessing and curse. It is called The Hidden Agent, and it is up at josephcox.com.